Welcome back to yet another Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. You can read my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad and print and online 24-7. But every Monday, you will find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And thank you all for all the comments last week that we got about uh, our very special guests, uh, Ray Parker Jr., Fran Strine, and the legendary Dick Cavett. Um, Dick was asking last week, you know, should he do a podcast? Well, based on the feedback that uh, I got from so many of you listeners, yes, he is still a very vital force in our world, and I think a lot of people would like to see a podcast from Dick Cavett. But this week, an equally fun an informative show. I am thrilled to have writer, director, actor, composer Luke Shyrock is joining us at the halfway point of the show to talk about his new film. It is a musical fantasy rock opera, Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon. It's a beautiful film. The music, which is all written by Luke, the lyrics, it is from beginning to end. It is a perfect meld of music, lyrics, cinematography, color, choreography, and I'm very excited we're going to get to talk to him about that. But before we get to Luke, I have a treat for you today, uh, and, a, and for Bailey Madison, who I know is trying to listen to today's show just so she can hear what her director, Johannes Roberts, had to say about working with her on The Stranger's Pray at Night. Uh, right now, I'm gonna play, we're going to play for you... Uh, with minimal editing, um, our comp- my complete interview with Johannes Roberts, and not really an inter- a conversation. As all of you know, you know everything I have is pretty much a conversation, as opposed to rapid fire questions and answers. Uh, Johannes, many of you saw his film last year, Forty Seven Meters Down in the Deep. His prior works, The Other Side of the Door, Storage Twenty Four, Dark Hunters. The man knows horror. The man knows fear. The man knows tension. He teams up with cinematographer Ryan Samuel for the first time. Ryan, an amazing cinematographer, probably best known for his work with director Jim Mickle on films like Stakeland, Cold in July, We Are What We Are, as well as Officer Down and Experimenter with Peter Sarsgaard. Ryan's work is fabulous and for him to pair up with Johannes the result in Strangers Pray at Night is amazing. He Johannes also reteams with his longtime editor Martin Brinkler editing so key in the tension factor with horror films the jump out of your skin factor and there are plenty of them here but of course the bulk of this all comes down to Bailey Madison who steps out of her comfort zone delivers a performance that as many years as I've known Bailey and Bailey knows I love her I didn't think she had this in her so she surprised the heck out of me came in at number three at the box office this weekend uh and it's expanding and everybody is the word of mouth is great everybody go see the strangers pray at night but right now listen to what Johannes Roberts and I had to say about the making of the strangers pray at night. It's so good to talk to you again. And oh my God, Johannes, this is an amazing film. You blew my mind with this film. 
It is so outstanding. I mean, you know how much I loved 47 Meters Down, and I loved your prior work, but to see what you have done here and working with Ryan as your cinematographer, wow. Yeah. I mean, I've loved Ryan's work for years with everything he's done with Jim Mickle. Um, Cold in July, uh, we We Are What We Are, Stakeland. And then he did Experimenter, and I love his work. But to see your visual sensibility and his visual sensibility come together, it's just absolutely stunning. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Lovely to hear. You know, how did you go about approaching this? Because you really, it feels so much more visceral and reinvigorated than, than the first film. Um, it was, yeah, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a tricky one always when you're approaching a, a sequel and this came on my desk and I, I liked, I really liked the first movie and I loved what Brian did on the first movie and I was like, okay, this is this is a bit of a minefield, you know, the, the first movie has a, has a real following and it's been 10 years, so is it a reboot, is it a sequel, is it a, you know, where are we kind of thing. And, and then I read the script and I, I realised... It was a real opportunity to to pay homage to the first movie and you know and make a movie within the world of the first movie that sort of totally fit with uh, with the kind of slow build family drama that then goes completely off the rails. Um, but then to bring in my own personality and 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 basically to make the, the John Carpenter movie I've always wanted to make and you know and 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 sort of make a the 80s movie that I, I would crave to watch these days you know Christine The Fog um, you know that's that's all in there and, and which is the reason I used Ryan as the DP you know he was the first person I just went look I, I just seen Cold in July and I was like I want this guy um, and, and let's let's uh, let's make a movie together I mean, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the cold, the fog, the steam, because that's one of the things, as soon as I saw the film, that was one of the things that, is that the ambient, the yellow haze covered with fog of the street lamps really sets the tone for us, the visual tone for the night. And then you just explode from there with color and saturation and honing in on very specific things that just, ooh, sent chills up and down your spine. <laughs> but I mean, this, yeah. the lighting and the lensing here is so well done, Johannes. You know, what you do with containing the space in a trailer park. So you have them essentially, Kinsey and Luke, pretty much keep going in a circle. And we subconsciously feel that they're running in circles trying to escape. But it's yeah. all but it's all contained. But then you make this great use of all the negative space because of the darkness. And it just heightens. Like you go into the bedroom as, you know, Kinsey's in there and she's crawling back on the floor and it's dark and you can't see, and then all of a sudden there's the painted China face popping up. And it's like yeah. you jump. Such an incredible job of the black on black texturing. How difficult is that to really bring that to life and incorporate that into your visual story? I don't know. You 
know what? Um, it just uh, the, the biggest thing is is it's sort of working out the canvas you're gonna paint on, uh, and, that, and 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 also the, the the style. And I think once you got those two things, you know, we it was you know working with Freddie, the production designer, Freddie West. And, and, and working out how this trailer park would look. And we built it because I just couldn't find something that I felt I was working for me. Um, Wait a minute, you're, sh- it, you're shooting in Georgia and you couldn't find a trailer park that would work for you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it, it was all shot in, in Kentucky, actually. But, um, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just... I, I just wanted a, a very distinct feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you go to a trailer park and it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trailers and it, it's very packed in and it, and it sort of, there, there was, I wanted this in, you know, I wanted the, the geography, the, the, it has like hills and there's a lot of space and there's a lot of like anything could come from anywhere. Um, and, it, and it just sort of, it's this enormous rolling kind of crazy place. I wouldn't feel a bit fantastical actually, to be honest. Um, once they go through the bridge, mm-hmm. you're kind of in this kind of another world really. Um, and, and so when, once you have that and, 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 you know, we had a very distinct style that we were aiming for, Ryan and I, with the, with the zoom lenses and the, the sort of 70s, 80s look. It kind of, yeah, it sort of all fell into place there. And, you know, the, 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 the look that, that Brian Patino had created in the first movie with the three strangers was so strong mm-hmm. that, um, it was, it was, yeah, it actually just became great fun, you know. I mean, the, the, the big, the big shock jump, the, the, the one you just pointed out, you know, the tunnel, that, yeah, we tried that a couple of times. It just wasn't working. And then I just did it one night. In the daytime, actually, we just sort of boarded up the tunnel and I just tried something. And it was so simple. It's like the simplest little thing, but it's just worked incredibly well. Um, but yeah, it, it was a fun one to do, though. But yeah, in the tunnel, in the drain pipe, that is an incredible, incredible shot. And the way you got this, the light just focused in to pick up, really, you see Bailey's mouth as she's screaming and really one eye is what you really focus in on from the headlight when she starts screaming. Yeah. It is so incredible. Similarly, what really ratchets up fear are those shots that you and Ryan got where Bailey is underneath a trailer behind the trellis and all we see is her one eye in between the slats. That was stunning. Absolutely stunning. Yes, I mean Ryan, Ryan's a genius with uh, with lighting, and then um, yeah, I mean so some of this stuff. It, it's funny how it, it works, you know. Um, I think I seem to remember that that sequence there. I it was very much on the you know on the off the cuff kind of thing. Is I was just trying to work out where the hell they're going to hide. I was literally like, look, why don't we just pull one of these things off here and we'll stick them under the trailer but that it just seemed to work nicely and then you know we put the camera on it and then of course you've got all the trailer stuff and it's just like this is great but yeah sometimes sometimes you know things just magic just happens you know the trellis thing and, and pulling it off and your inspiration just do it kids do that all the time yeah 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 
So uh, the authenticity of what you're bringing in as people are trying to hide, I mean, these are places that adults may not necessarily think of, but kids, and when you're afraid, you really revert back to being a kid, and, you know, and you want, you know, mom and dad, and it's like, where are you going to hide? And it's like, I'm hiding under here, you know, you're not really thinking too clearly. So, I mean, just so wonderful with those little touches that you brought in. And similarly, I've got to say, you mentioned Freddie's production design. The interiors of those trailers. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. Oh, my God. Period perfect. We feel, it feels timeless, Johannes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It feels timeless, yet captures with the fake wood paneling and all, captures that 70s vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That will never go away. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah we, had, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, it, that was the whole feel, as I say, is, is, is that when they, when they cross that bridge, is that you, you, you've got into this kind of little bubble, this kind of other world that is, that is kind of timeless. I mean, and the whole film is so visceral on multiple levels, not just on the visual level, but your sound design. This is a truly immersive oral experience. The sonic texture is visceral as you've got, you play with the volume, your sound designers um, did a great job. And then layering, you know, we've got the tap, tap, tap of a single key on a window, the sound of gravel under the foot, panting, feet running on wet ground and grass, which is very specific sound. You know, the sound of the carburetor on the truck. You know, the dull axe being dragged. That's one of my favorites. The dull axe being dragged on the ground. Just yeah. every little sound. I mean, how closely did, was that on paper? Or was this something that you and, and the sound designers just came up with to really incorporate and punctuate that sonic experience? Yeah, I mean, that, this was a big one. I'd, I'd worked, uh, Pindrop, I uh, did the sound on, and I'd, I'd done a couple of movies of them already, so I knew that they would they would deliver for me. And I think that it really, the thing about the first movie, about Brian's movie, is that the sound design is, is, is really, I think it's the best I've ever heard in a horror movie. And I go back to that movie, and I'm like, wow, you know, nothing really happens in the movie, and you don't see anything. Really, and it's just—it's these three strange last people playing with, with the with the two characters, and, and it's all about sound. And and I so I just I really, really took that from the first movie, and, and I wanted to play it, play with that as much as possible. And and yeah, so it, it's quite a—it it was a tricky one in in, in terms of I I like. To, I, I really wanted to go a bit more full on with music and and, and have fun there. So uh, so we had to find the, the the quiet spaces for Pin Drop to really play around with. But but yeah, I mean they they you know we knew that this was going to be a very sound intensive project, um, and, and we had a lot of fun with it. Or they had a lot of fun with it. Well, you know, and you and you really just capitalized on the whole concept of it's a lot more frightening if you can't see something, but you just hear sounds because your imagination mm -hmm. takes over. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens here. I mean, I was like grinning from ear to ear watching this film 
with everything that you put into it. That's amazing. I haven't enjoyed a horror film, quote unquote horror film, this much in a long time. That's brilliant. I it it just amazed me. You know, and I gotta ask you about I gotta ask about the needle drops, the actual music. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, this is just it's hilarious, and the fact that we can we all now know how to kill people in like two minutes and thirty eight seconds of a song running. Hey. <laughs> Very valuable information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, you know, uh, we, I, I knew I was going to use an 80s track over the pool sequence, and that had all been designed for that. Uh, and I'm a massive Jim Steinman fan. I love, uh, uh, I love all his, his, his work. And so I was like, look, just, just um, use the Bonnie Tyler track. Uh, to the heart. We'll try that over that um, so I managed to put it on and the whole sequence just really came together and it was just fantastic we never tried another song that was it just worked we just laid on bang it worked and then as we were finding the movie it became very apparent how big a part the truck was playing in the movie because I really wanted to make Christine you know one of my favourite movies so that would <laughs> have been a, a big influence on, on, on the way I'd gone about it and so we just started I um, trying music coming out of the car all the time as it did in Christine, and we, you know, we 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 played around with sort of some cliche sort of country stuff, and it sort of worked. And then it's like, why don't we just take this '80s vibe and really, really go with it? Because the whole movie has been shot like a timeless, or been shot like an '80s movie, mm-hmm. uh, and it was like, well, let's let's really go with that, and. It just, we started off with the, the opening, um, and suddenly the whole movie, it just, we realized what the movie was. And I, I just had so much fun. You know, every one of those tracks, I would just go home every night, and I would I'd go through my library of, of what I'd grown up with, and then also just try and find new, unheard of big tracks that, that had passed me by, like that Kim Wilde song, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just like, where? I, I never heard that before. And I, when I found that, I was like, yeah, this is perfect. And it was a really great fun thing to, to discover these uh, lost 80s tracks and then also to play around with all the big Jim Steinman tracks, like, yeah, Supply Song at the end, Making Love at Nothing at all. Uh, you know, it's just great. It was, it was a really good, fun experience, that. Well, and the thing is, you bring in, you know, you bring in the air supply track, and it, it is, and you've got Total Eclipse of the Heart, and you've just got, you know, these romantic songs thrown in there, these ballads that are so associated, not only with the 80s, but with couples and romance, yeah. and, and it is so counterintuitive <laughs> yeah. to what's yeah. unfolding, that, that, you know, juxtaposition, I just think, is just brilliant. But at the same time, it also celebrates the brother and sister love that Kinsey and Luke have for each other and the camaraderie. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it just takes the it takes the movie in a very different direction, in a slightly operatic direction towards the end. But I, I really like that. I get chills when I, I see that end sequence. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it's sort of gone in a whole new, uh, different place. Well, and I have another sequence. I, the most beautiful sequence in the film is the pool, 
with yeah. all the neon. Oh my God. How did you go about designing that and structuring that whole sequence? Because that sequence you could just lift out and make its own short film. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. People always talk about lightning in a bottle with films, you know, and, 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 and you know, sometimes you capture it, sometimes you don't. And I think that sequence is, is a real example of that. You know, we, we went back and forward many times on that sequence, like, um, before we shot it, like, where are we going to shoot it? How's it going to work? Is it, you know, should we, I think we even at some point we talked about cutting it or, or not having the palm trees or, you know, so we, we, we sort of went round and around and we found this place, uh, the swimming pool, which was not in the trailer park, which was miles away, but we were having to use it for tax incentive reasons, actually, because it was, it, we just got a, we needed to shoot in a certain area. Mm -hmm. And it was just totally, in many ways, it was just totally wrong. It was, you know, this pool was supposed to be a small kind of motel pool, but this pool was like double Olympic size pool. You know, it was it, it, the the bottom of it was like maybe eight meters deep. It was just insane, and we were right by a river, and it was like, how the fuck are we going to make this sequence work? But it was like, okay, let's let's do it. We can we can make this happen, and we. We sort of went back and forward on it all the time, and then we got everything ready, found these amazing palm trees. You know, Ryan lit, lit the pool up, and and it was just, um, I whilst everything was going on, I just, it was taking such a long time to to just set up, because it was such a big old thing. You know, I just um, uh, took the doubles and just filmed everything on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. um, and literally, I don't often do that, but um, that's that's we just shot the shots I, I did on life. I, I I wanted to shoot in, in a like something. It's my favourite shot uh, of the movie where where it up runs out and you have this wide shot that zooms in, uh, and I you know it's a proper retro shot, and we just yeah it just kind of clicked and came together. It was like a magic, and then. Damien as, as the man in the mask and Lewis just 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 brought it to life and and and, and uh, it just had this kind of intensity that but you know it it, it was just a, um, a crazy roll of the dice that 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 all came together perfectly but it could have gone so wrong I mean when we turned the camera when we turned the lights on every single insect from Kentucky that was living on the river beside us <laughs> into that pool. I've never seen anything like it. I had to get a whole team of people to be to be taking like the whole the water is actually bubbling with insect life. Oh my I was like, god. I can't film this, it's supposed to look you know, you've got this it was unbelievable. I've got shots of just like creatures in there. You know, so it was stuff like everything could have gone wrong in the final final sort of end sequence where Lewis was running out of the pool, we were running out of light and it was an impossible shot to do. You know, so it, that scene could have gone so badly wrong, but somehow it just kind of worked. Uh, um, and, and yeah, it just, yeah, it's beautiful. 
the neon and then the the lighting the underwater lighting of the pool and the color that resulted just absolutely exquisite and such a gorgeous contrast to the terror that's unfolding throughout the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it doesn't. I, I think this, this just sort of something again that you, you just could never sort of plan or, or know is, is, is when, is when Lewis, uh, you know, um, flashing, and you just have the blood on his face, and you have the Bonnie Tyler track, and it's something really sort of beautiful, but in ter- terribly disturbing about mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's just, yeah, like I said, it's lightning in a bottle. It's, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, great scene, great moment. You know, how invaluable was it having Martin doing your editing again? Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, it, it's huge for me. I, I, we're now four films in, and we have such a shorthand, and we're so laid back together. But you know, every morning I would, I would shoot the stuff, and it would, he would have it, and then at, at um, you know, ten in the morning, I would, or, or whatever, it would be, I was shooting night, so it would be sort of my equivalent of sort of like three in the morning. I'd pick up the phone, and and he'd go. No, didn't work. Or yes, it did work. Or what on earth were you doing here? And I would, I would then get angry and be like, you don't know, you, you're not looking at it right, and you're not looking at it right. And I put down the phone, and then, and then half an hour later, I'd call back up and go, okay, what didn't work? <laughs> and, we would, and it was great. You know, we had such a good shorthand that um, that he, you know, he, he can look at something and he he goes. You know, you didn't get that. That didn't quite work. So we were running. The great thing about it is, because of that, I run uh, a pickup shoot constantly through mm-hmm. the movie. So, because I'm pretty, you know, I've, I've come from a, a background of of very small movies. Uh, I can work very, very fast, mm-hmm. and, and I would, I'd, I, you know, I'd come back the next day and I'd, I'd sit everybody down, you know, sit, I'd talk to Ryan and the, and, the, and the producers, and I'd say, look, I need to, I know, I know we're pushed, but I need to get this shot and this shot again because it's just not landing, and it, it's a great, it's a really, really useful thing to have because then, you know, all those beats that you normally would miss I, I made sure that we got I mean we would always be pushed it, they would, people on uh, the producers and, the, and then Ryan would hate Martin because it would always be like oh, for, you know he was this mysterious <laughs> off camera person that was constantly going no that didn't quite work or that didn't quite work um, but yeah it was yeah, it's, it's very very important to have a, that, that team around you that you have a shorthand with you know, how, how strictly did you stick to Ben and Brian's script? And I ask this because, you know, the way the story unfolds, you know, we eventually see Kinsey step up her game. She turns from being the hunted into the hunter. She fires the shotgun. But, you know, one of the great things, the most heartfelt moment was when she swings that baseball bat in the bed of the truck because earlier in the movie, early on, 
you know, she's talking about, you know, well, she was never allowed to, you know, swing the bat. Yeah. Luke joked yeah. with Kinsey, you, you couldn't lift it. So it really brings that brother-sister moment full circle. So I'm wondering, was that always on the page? Or did that kind of develop through the characters in the movie? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to me, I, I would always, uh, you know, a, a script is a blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, uh, uh, you know, the writers have, have no you know, no idea of the situation and the world that we're in. So so I, I would take the the outline of the movie and then and then you you create the world beyond that. So very much the yeah, the Kinsey the whole baseball thing that was um that came that that developed um from from really wanting to find this arc for her that and and uh, and her her um, yeah her journey, which which I felt was sort of like super super important um, uh, for the movie. So yeah, the baseball scene was was something that we had very much bought in. I didn't really work with it. That's very I'm very pleased that you picked up on that. Um, uh, I'm not you know it was it was a nice for me for me as a director I like that sort of. Just that little arc kind of mm -hmm. thing of, of, of it was it was an important thing to have. But I mean, you know, it was a great that script had been worked and worked uh, obviously by Ben and and um, and, uh, and Brian over the years. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, you look, I'm a writer director, so I, I know how to shape something, and I think it's very important that a director does that um, uh, and brings bringing unity to, to, a, to a project. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I saved the best for last. I would be remiss not to ask you about, about my girl Bailey, you know, and, you know, what, what led you to cast Bailey and her performance here, Johannes, I, this is, I've never seen anything come from her as strong as this. Um, I knew she was a good actress but the level of emotional depth that you bring out of her in this performance with strength and power is mind-blowing. So to see this, just, it was like magic for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful. Um, I, um, what, what she had, we, I remember we um, uh, sitting down and, chatting with her one day on set and I basically just say look don't ever change um, because what one of the big skills she has is she uh, she makes me feel very comfortable and, and I hope she would in, in return uh, say, say the reverse about me and it's an amazing thing to have when you know, she's just up for playing. She's just, she just, uh, and she'll listen to notes. And I never feel uncomfortable saying anything or worried that that she'd take the, you know, she'd, get, she'd take it the wrong way or get grumpy with it. You know, I would, my direction to her most of the time would just be to go, uh, you know, I'd come into set and I'd go, baby, don't fuck this up, and then walk away. And, and we would just have like a, a really relaxed, sort of relationship between the two and it, what that meant is that 
is that we could just really push and play, you know, push the boundaries and play. And, you know, if I felt like she wasn't giving me what I wanted, I didn't feel in any way worried about going, look, Bailey, that was... Actually, <laughs> uh, it, would, it would be fun. And she just really dug deep, you know. Um, and and um, it, was a, it was such a... It is, it is for, a, for a director to have that is, is so much fun. It is, it's just a joy for them to play around with. You know, every day we'd come on set and we would just, we'd take the scenes and we'd, we'd work them and work out where we'd want to go with them. But yeah, she, she, she has this open, it's just incredible professional attitude that's just, she's 18 going on 50, you know? Yeah. She's like the most growing up kid that I've ever met. She's just really smart and professional and, and Of course, this is such a pivotal film in her career because this really takes her out of the sweet, you know, the young teen, preteen genres and really bumps it up. It's her first R-rated film. And, you know, we really see her come of age in this film. Yeah. But contributing to Bailey's performance, though... Lewis Pullman, where did you find Lewis? He's wonderful. And the two of them together, there is never a moment you don't believe they're brother and sister. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, he is absolutely phenomenal. He's he's a very different actor to Bailey uh, and and would work in a a very different way. Um, But with just. Um, you know the the honesty to his performance, and I, I um, the, the casting director um, found him. I mean, found him. He, he's a, you know Bill Pullman's son, so it was it was kind of like, um, look, uh, we just had uh, this guy audition. You should take a look at this. And I remember just seeing the audition tapes, and it's very hard to tell normally on audition tapes. And there was just something about him. I was like, I want him to be my brother. There was like a, I could, I never got my head around the role. You know, it was a real, with the script, there was a real worry that we, that the kids could come across brattish. Mm-hmm. And, and you would, you'd find them pretty annoying. And you just want them to die, basically. <laughs> um, and, and I remember when he did his read, I was like, oh, oh, this guy's, this is interesting in in that he just there was like a calm big brother feel to him that was not was not cool but it was just he was just great I was like oh yeah this is this is, he's the perfect foil to 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 Kinsey he's, he's the sort of well adjusted but not annoyingly sort of like jock like I don't know everything sort of worked and we put them together and, and they just yelled as well and both their performances the, the, they both work in a very different way and, and um, it, it, yeah it's, it, it's great I, I've i never had so much fun as, 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 as playing with those guys you know it would just be like and it would be playing you know we would we'd get on set and, and just I could I could push them as far as I like. I could, you know, and, and they equally they would come to me and go, look, can we try this? What, what, what do we do here? And it, yeah, it's hilarious, hilarious. But, um, but yeah, he's, he's, 
insanely good actor. So lucky cast, you know, great cast. So would you come back and direct a sequel to this one? Yeah, I mean, let's see. Let's see what um, happens March 9th. And that was Johannes Roberts. And yes, you heard Johannes correctly. Lewis Pullman, who plays opposite Bailey Madison in The Strangers Pray at Night, is the son of none other than one of my all-time favorite people, my friend Bill Pullman. Um, So this film is a win-win for me on every single level. And right now, something else that is a win-win is welcome to the fabulous and multi-talented Luke Shyrock. Hello, Luke. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. After seeing your film, I'd shoot myself if I didn't have you. What a... <laughs> exquisite is the first word that came to my mind as I'm watching Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon. Oh, my God. This is a... Wow, thank be- you so much. I mean, Luke, this is a beautiful, beautiful film. You just had your final performance at CineQuest last night. Um, yep. you know, right. How has the audience received this film thus far? Well, so far it's been great. We, um, we've been getting a lot of great reviews, and I'm really pleased with the response. I just, you know, I with this kind of project, which has so many layers and so many different elements, it's kind of hard to identify the the audience, you know, whether we should approach it as a, a musical theater thing and try to find musical theater fans or if we are looking for more of a art house film audience or what. And it kind of, you know, it was, it was always a conversation with our PR team about how to, how to pitch the movie or how to frame it. But um, it turned out not to be an issue, actually. I was just really impressed with the audience's kind of well-rounded response people loved the the music and the kind of i don't know like handmade art direction of the film and then at the same time the the q a just demonstrated a really thoughtful reception of the themes of the film's story and i was just as a writer i was really pleased with that i mean this is you know for the this is when I as I was watching it, I kept thinking of the rock opera Tommy. As yeah. I, as I'm watching it, you followed right along with. There must be, I think, what two sentences, if that, in the film that are spoken dialogue. Everything, and for for film goers or and television viewers that have not seen the feature film, the big screen film Tommy, um, I would equate this to. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and once the episode Once More with Feeling, the Emmy-nominated episode where everything was sung. And to give people an idea of how to gauge this. So beautifully crafted. So I'm curious, Luke, because this is a real blend of music and lyrics, choreography, mm-hmm. cinematography, and color. Color plays a big part in this one. Uh, in terms of defining mm-hmm. emotion and character, what yeah. came, what came first? Did the story come? Did the musical composition come? What was your process? Because you're writer, you're director, you're yeah. starring in it, you're composer, and you're producer. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so you're wearing so many hats, but there had to be yeah. a progressive chain for you as a creative force. Yeah, it's true. And it, it's true there was kind of a workflow, but the, it's it's hard to describe because it was so kind of, um, I don't know, cyclical. Like there were so many. So, I mean, the, the music came first, but it's not exactly accurate to say that there was just a set of songs and then we crafted a film around it because the songs were really rough. They were demos and just kind of ideas. They were well enough kind of, I don't know, mapped out to shoot the film to it. But when I went back in post-production, I was able to make a lot of adjustments and there were a lot of edits to the, to the soundtrack that were made to accommodate the, the editor's decisions. And, mm-hmm. um, so there was really this kind of audiovisual dialogue that um, that we were able to enact, and 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 like you said too, the visual mise en scène and the color, the production design was so integral to the process. And there were things that um, that were in the script, and then things that just kind of happened through the creative collaborative process on set. Um, and I guess it's with any film, but especially with a musical film where it's just so highly integrated. There's there's really no... It's really hard to identify what came first. It's kind of this, like, weird synthesis that just happens. It's kind of like alchemy or something. You know, and, um, and of course, the lyrics here... The lyrics are your dialogue. Um, yeah. And it, you go a step further than what everybody thinks of as a musical in the traditional sense, where... And what people, you know, I'm I'm talking the traditional Busby Berkeley, Stanley Donen musicals of the heyday of Hollywood, where the songs are an integral part of the story with the lyrics, with the tempo. Um, But here, the songs are in lieu of dialogue. They become, the songs Mm -hmm. become the dialogue. So it's so, and you really see and hear this unfolding from beginning to end and that in and of itself it's one thing to write a script it's another to write a script in lyrics that you have to set to music (laughs) with a beat and a tempo and just so beautifully done luke was it always well in that sense yeah it actually has more it owes more to the tradition of opera than musical Mm -hmm. theater and um, that's something I've I've talked about a little bit in in other interviews. But um, you know, my background is classical music more than popular music. So I was actually taking inspiration from classical composers and romantic composers, and you know, opera was kind of the frame of reference in terms of the the form and just the mythical scope of the story, you know, Mm -hmm. this kind of grand archetypal narrative that spans the, like, spans through romance and through psychology and philosophy, and this kind of epic scope is really operatic more than what you see on the Broadway stage. Mm -hmm. Very much so, yeah. I I don't get a Broadway sense when I see this, when I watch Tommy Mm -hmm. Battle's Silver Sea Dragon. 
I get a musical sense, but I get a rock opera sense. Yeah. Very much an, an operatic sense. Um, yeah. And, you know, we don't see that today. So, I mean, for many people, you know, who weren't exposed to the earlier, you know, the Tommy big screen right. rock opera, this is a whole new experience for them. And mm-hmm. without a lot of without people realizing it, they're they are being exposed to the elements of opera because so many mm-hmm. people you go through school and it's like, oh, my God, I don't want to learn about opera. I don't want to go to an opera. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you're actually widening everybody's horizons here, Luke. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, opera gets a bad rap. I think it's 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 a shame. And it has a lot to do with just the vocal stylization mm-hmm. and kind of the archaic, I don't know, set design. And I mean, there's a lot of really progressive modern stagings of old operas, but I mean, I think musically for new audiences, it, it remains a little bit stuffy and inaccessible. So, and it's expensive too, to go to the opera. So I thought, <laughs> you know, why not try to reinvigorate this more popular expression of opera in the rock opera and put it on the screen and make it more accessible and with a little bit more of a a modern pop rock, you know, musical mm-hmm. style. And yeah, it's a shame that these rock operas have fallen out of fashion. And there was a there was a time when this was kind of a a burgeoning genre, but mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a hard one to pull off, I guess. I don't it I don't is know, I guess. it is, but I think, you know, possibly with some of the musicals that we've had popping up you know, over the mm-hmm. past few years, I think that may be w- helping to open people's eyes and ears to experience yeah. more of the musical genre. Yeah. And then once you get exposed, okay, then you can you open up even further with a film like Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think it's it's good timing. Like you said, there have there has been a resurgence of musical musical theater films. Um, that have been getting a lot of a lot of uh, press and a lot of great reviews and such. So that's been, I think, in our favor, um, for sure. Now, was it always your intention to direct this one? Um, I was always planning to be involved heavily as either a co-director or maybe even just as the writer, but I always wanted to make sure I was working with a director who really understood the the story. Um, I didn't know for sure that I was going to direct it. I had a, I had a team and I, I think it's common for musical films and pieces with this kind of this many moving parts to have like a kind of a directorial team. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we started out, but it was, really not my intention to finish the film as the sole director, but there were some like personal dramas during the production that required that my co-director drop out um, and and move back to New York to kind of focus on, on his own life and personal affairs. So that was totally out of my control and it just ended up, it turned out that we, I ended up finishing the movie as the sole director and picking up some slack as a producer, which was 
Interesting. <laughs> a, a steep learning curve for sure. <laughs> you had a lot of learning curves here. The music, yeah, not a learning curve for you. But direct- no, that that was my my only <laughs> expertise, you could say. Um, you know, how I had to fake it till I made it through the rest. Well, you know, I'm curious because of wearing the producer's hat, which means mm-hmm. you're overseeing stuff, but you're working on stuff that you aren't quite sure how to execute or do. So, you know, how did producer Luke? deal with working with his team, particularly working with Henry Zabalos, his your DP. Henry's mm-hmm. work is just gorgeous. Between Henry, your production designer, yeah. and your choreographer, because the movement within this film, it's not just somebody walking across a room. Every mm-hmm. movement of yourself and your main co-star, Celine Held, held you know, it's mm-hmm. all, it's it's floating. You're floating. You know, mm-hmm. in a choreographed fashion. So, you know, you've got your production design, designing these sets, working on the color for the emotional punctuation yeah. points. You've got Henry's lovely lighting yeah. and framing. And you've got the choreography. Yeah. So what was that learning curve of of that little triumvirate of pieces? Yeah. I mean, it was steep. The learning curve was steep. It, it was also thrilling because you know I've worked in the past I've I've worked on smaller projects where I just didn't have you know the team the collaboration that I had on this one which you know was is really my my favorite place to be in the middle of a collaborative circle and I was just so lucky to have these fantastic artists to work with and the learning curve was about one of letting go, you know, because I was literally, as you say, like learning choreographic steps in order to float through a beautiful, beautifully designed, you know, set while this whole crew of, you know, super talented uh, grips and electric, you know, technicians and cinematographer Henry, they're all setting up for these amazing shots that I just couldn't even possibly micromanage any of it if I wanted to. I had to... I had to let go and let these people do their amazing work. Cause I, and, and like you said, I mean, as soon as I started taking on more pr- producerial roles, I'm literally like getting ready for my shots as Tommy and talking to Henry about the shot list and meanwhile signing checks for payroll, you know, literally all at the same time. And like, <laughs> this was just, this was just a crazy scenario where I had to just, you know, compartmentalize to a degree, but also just let go and let things flow and and trust the process. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were composing and when you were putting this together, were you getting any visions in your head, creating any images for how you would, you envisioned this film to look? Because as I said, your production design, the apartment that Tommy and Carolyn Mm -hmm. live in, the desk, elevated, you know, attached to the wall near the ceiling with the clouds above it that light up like lightning with neon lightning bolts. So inventive, so creative, fits the character of Tommy perfectly with that design. But it's, it's just, it's so original. So I'm curious, especially when you listen to the lyrics, uh, when, when you listen to what's being sung, um, 
it really all fits together. So I'm curious whether you were envisioning a lot of the look while you were actually writing. I was, and yeah, it's it's kind of, this was kind of where it all started, to be honest, because when you're writing lyrics, you know, lyrics are not always just the way we say things. They're often lyrical. They're often mm-hmm. rich with metaphors and imagery. And my my music has always been kind of narrative-driven and full of this kind of, like, fantastical, poetic, lyrical stuff. So I I started to recognize that there was a lot of visual elements to my song craft. And I thought, what if I just actually made made it, shown it, actually visualized these elements and created these metaphors for real? So you have, you know, the floating bed and the floating desk, and you have the red yarn that she attaches to Tommy's collar that allows him to help find his way home and all of these kind of like figurative elements that actually become real in this, in this musical universe. Um, these were all just kind of lyrical ideas that would have just been sung about. And I just thought, you know, this could be really magical to just show it. Um, so that was all in the script. Um, that was all stuff that, and I think that's why the production got, a lot of support from really incredible um, artists who became our heads of department, like Maki, the production designer. Mm-hmm. She she read the script and all of this stuff was right there. She was able to see exactly what she was going to do, and it was it was great. I mean, that was partly why our our working relationship was so fluid because Maki went to Detroit like three or four weeks before I was able to go and started working on the pre-production for the art department. And by the time I got there, I remember the first thing I saw when I walked into the, the warehouse where we, where we built the set, I saw these giant, uh, like, handmade clouds that she had built. And she walked me over to these clouds and she said, watch, and she, she clicked this remote control and the lights inside started flashing like lightning. And I was just, like, blown away because it was exactly what I had hoped it would be, you know, this, really handmade magical mm-hmm. uh, effect, you know, but there it was. She she totally nailed it. And, and, you know, it's this kind of craft that I could never do myself. I can write it on the page, but that's, that's what is so fun because you get to work with people who can actually do that stuff. And that's one of the things I, I that I so appreciate about this film, Luke, is that, it is. We go. You go back to the basics with these handmade effects. It's not mm-hmm. CGI, handmade yeah, yeah. handmade effects, um, and elements that surprise you when you see them. But they surprise you in a, in a good way, in a beautiful way. You know, other sequence mm-hmm. and other key sequences in here. Since our our boy Tommy, who is you, is bat. He's mm-hmm. on trial for his his own demons and guilt in life and mm-hmm. you create these court a choir of courtroom sequences that is yeah. outstanding you know it's it pretty much there is there is no color it's grays and browns it's very mm-hmm. flat so it really distinguishes from 
Tommy's yeah. life and world. Um, but it's so well executed, so well designed and executed. You really felt as if the world was ganging up on Tommy in that in those courtroom sequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was um. I mean, that was the goal was to kind of contrast that scene from the the very colorful and, and kind of magical, whimsical. Uh, romantic settings of the second act and to kind of bookend the film with these more, like you said, kind of gray and brown and, and muted um, tones of the courtroom atmosphere and to kind of try and invoke this film noir, almost black and white kind of Kafka-esque mm-hmm. universe where there's this big bureaucratic machine that's working against you and you don't really know what the rules of the game are and you have to kind of uncover it as you go. And, um, yeah, I, I really was impressed and so pleased with the way that the production design helped invoke that kind of, um, dystopic, I guess, impersonal Mm -hmm. feeling. And yet at the same time that the choreography and the acting and, um, it's still all very, I don't know. There's there's still kind of a magical whimsy to the courtroom, but mm-hmm. it's just this dark version of it, I guess. Yeah, uh, the fact that you have all the jurors looking similar, a very timeless mm-hmm. look. You know the you know the the cloche hats of the 1940s and 50s, mm-hmm. um, the pearl necklaces, the the you know shirt waisted dresses the women are wearing. You know, it really mm-hmm. it's a timeless kind of of ambiance that you create with those courtroom sequences that, you know, could, could really be taking place anytime, anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the, the choreography then lends itself so beautifully where you have the jury box that you've got, you know, they're singing one way and they're moving one way. Then you've Mm -hmm. got all the observers in the courtroom. They're moving a completely different way. It really yeah. is just so incredible. It's very geometric even to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think two things really. I mean, you you were talking about the wardrobe, and I yeah, I have to mention Olga. She she Olga Mill, our, our costume designer, really just knocked knocked that one out of the park. I mean, they had a really small team, and they had to dress. I don't know, like. 50-plus extras in this very specific, almost period, mm-hmm. uh, wardrobe. And they found all of that stuff. They made a lot of it, and they found a lot of it just at thrift stores, and they just collected this massive wardrobe and had had to fit so many different actors. And they just did such an amazing job to to create that, you know, kind of timeless look. Mm-hmm. And... And then we also just really lucked out with the location. We we shot it in Detroit at the um, Detroit Masonic Temple, and this this building is itself mythical, and it has this kind of neoclassical Gothic look to it, and it's just really wild. You know, these rooms that are actually still in use, um, but they do rent them out a lot for films because they're so just i don't know they're so special they're they're courtly and kind of um 
institutional, but they're also more than that. They're also kind of like regal, almost ominous and dark and yeah. regal. Yeah, it's 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 more than just you know. We looked at actual courtrooms, but no. they were too sterile. You know, we <laughs> wanted something that was almost like yeah, regal. Mm-hmm. And this really, this really, we almost didn't have to design that set at all. It was, it came like that. It was crazy. Well, you know, unfortunately, we're actually out of time for today, Luke. But before I let you go, I've got to ask you, what is next mm-hmm. for Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon? More festivals, a distribution deal yet? Yeah. What's, where are we going with this so people can see it? Yeah, well, we're on our festival tour right now, you could say. We're kind of, we just premiered um, at Cinequest, and we have a few... A few more festivals lined up, but I'm not I'm not allowed to tell you yet which ones, but we're going to announce very soon. So if you follow us on Facebook, um, it's at I am Tommy Silver, or you can go to our website, IamTommySilver.com, and we're going to announce all of our festival screenings coming up this year, and we'll have all of our information there about future distrib- distribution and where you can find the film online. So thank you so much for taking the time to oh, chat with me. Luke, please, please tell me you'll come back on the show as you get some more festivals booked on. I would love to have you come back and talk more about this film. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Oh, I mean, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So everybody, you know, I am Tommy com. Go there, follow on Facebook. And if this film is anywhere near you, Trust me, you will be so happy you spent the money to go see it. Luke, thank Thank you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Me too. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Luke. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. And that was Luke Shirok talking about Tommy Battles the Silver Sea Dragon. So check out IamTommySilver.com to find out where you can see the film. Uh be on the festival circuit and when distribution kicks in. That is, again, all the time we have today. Next week, Ned Airbar is with us talking about his feature film, California No. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 